0: This is Bonjour Chai, the bon-Jew, bad-Jew edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Toronto and David Sklar in Calgary. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we speak to Professor David Kaufman about the history of Jewish-Indigenous relations, and we'll have a wrap-up of 2021 in Jewish culture. But first, Alana, David, how are you guys doing?
1: Decent. I am ready for the quote-unquote holidays, the chagim. the chagim, the chagim of the masses.
0: What do you guys do on Christmas Eve? This
1: year, I'm giving into all stereotypes, and uh, as I like to call it, on Arab Christmas, I think uh, I'm going to be doing like a Chinese movie thing. Well, really not. It's, when, when is Christmas Eve this year? Is it Friday or Saturday? Never mind. I'm going to be doing Shabbat dinner. Friday night. But on Saturday night, not on Erev, on, on on the day itself. After Shabbat ends, I'm going to be gathering with some friends. We're going to get some kosher Chinese food and watch a film. Because why not?
2: Wow. On Christmas Eve, I think I'm still working. I will be uh, recreational therapy-aiding... where i work and uh they've they've put me to work really as the dancing go-go boy at the senior citizen home itself so they they, they know whoa talk about leaning into stereotypes Ah, oh i know i know but they, they know like i'm i'm a the more outgoing gregarious rta there so they're like david david you're an actor david go dance for all the the old people itself so i've been that is my official job Every Christmas party, because there's four different departments <laughs> That's really in it, funny. and then they just make me go and dance, and, and all the old ladies just uh, have um, a conniption. Do you, fit. Bring out the gold lame, do you bring out the gold lamé? Do you bring out the gold lamé hot pants, or <laughs> is it like, do they have scrubs, hot pants
0: for working in that?
2: Well, they they wanted me to dress up as Santa Claus originally, and um, that that did not work out in the end. I think I was a bit too too thin for the Santa costume, but um, as even today, <laughs> I will be heading off to work, and I will be dancing my tuchas off for all the old cockers.
0: I always like when Christmas Eve and by extension New Year's Eve end up on a Friday night because it's just so much less pressure and so much <laughs> less so like, true. oh, what are you going to do? It is this and that. It's Like, okay, great. We're going to have Shabbat dinner and that's it. And somebody asked, like, "Was we're having guests next week and they were like, are you going to do Chinese food? And I was like, I don't know. It's a little stereotypical. Yeah. Maybe. I never I did know. it growing <laughs> up.
1: I started incorporating that into my tradition in the last two years just because I wanted to and it felt appropriate. <laughs> Um, what do you, what do you both feel when people wish you uh Merry Christmas? Do you just say Merry Christmas Do you? Do Do you respond? Or do you, or do you say, oh, I don't celebrate? No. I mean,
2: okay, here's the thing. I, if someone knows me quite well and they know I'm a Jew, uh, and they were to wish me a Merry,
1: I meant someone who doesn't know you, like someone in a store or something uh, like you that. You know
2: what? it's the season and i just say thanks so much or i wish them back how do they like they don't know and chronica it, it, no i over. know i'm just I wondering think maybe when i was younger i was trying to have this like i'm offended by this everyone should say happy holidays right and now i was just like no it's christmas let's just accept it and stop being offended by it
0: yeah i did a whole segment about this on my hyphen podcast with my uh Christian colleague uh, Stephen Backhouse, and uh, which you should all listen to because it's so wonderful. We have such great conversations about Judaism and Christianity. Hyphen Jewish Living Lab on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, it's really good. We should have a whole segment on at some point in the future. Um, but yeah, like that was a really sneaky, oh, shameless on, plug. Why you not should invite them on? Come on, how many times have you guys put in shameless? Yeah,
1: plugs? crossover totally. episode. Yeah. I'm totally being facetious. so. Um,
0: Yeah, I, you know, I used to think that it was important to make this political point, not because of, like, you know, politics, but out of religion. It's like, I don't celebrate Christmas. I'm not a follower of Jesus. Don't wish me Merry Christmas. I'm like, there's no point. You know, like, I used to be that guy that—
1: I love how you become, like, a pompous British man when you're defending your identity.
0: Because every 22-year-old that is trying to stand on ceremony for these things— is channeling the energy of a prompt, of a pompous British man. Okay. <laughs> like, you know, I used to be that person when there were missionaries on the street corner handing out leaflets for Jews to believe in Jesus and I would stop and I would engage with them and I would discuss and I would try to talk to them that they're wrong. And I'm like, there are better, more important things to do in life than to try to correct every mistaken notion that every human being has in this world. And it's not my role. It's not my job. I don't
2: want to think about it to like deal with any of that. I think all they're really saying when they say Merry Christmas is have a good one. Take it easy. Enjoy your day off. Relax. Oh, did you guys
0: see this Bonkerballs Balls video? I, I say Bonkerballs. Balls. I've never I'm heard probably. you say that before. Um, did you guys see this totally? I've <laughs> never heard that. Okay. Um, did you see this video of this? Um, it's like a 20-second clip on Twitter, and I'll post it on the Bonjour Chai Twitter or something, because I've only seen it on Twitter. Some guy is that they're at this Hasidic wedding, and that you can tell it's a Hasidic wedding because everybody's dressed in black and white with the big strimals and everything, and there's a big mechitza, and there's a mariachi band in the middle of the <laughs> thing, and they're playing Feliz Navidad, and everybody is <laughs> dancing and singing along. It's hysterical.
1: <laughs> That's kind of like when you see in Israel people use Christmas decorations on their sukkahs. Where they just literally don't yes, know? Yes,
0: exactly. Where it says "Joyeux Noël," but they got it from some, you know, <laughs> yeah. country.
1: Send
0: send the overstock to Israel. They'll use it in the sukkah. So they're like,
1: we don't know what this means, but it's it looks pretty.
0: It's it's unbelievable. These Hasidim are sitting hilarious. there and clapping and waving to like Feliz Navidad.
1: <laughs> I need to <laughs> it's see that. The first this.
0: time they made heard the song. <laughs> so, um, so catchy. Yeah. I wonder what so it means. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's the Jewish Christian thing that we should be. Um, aspiring to. That's Jewish-Christian dialogue right there. When journalist Michael Toledano was arrested and released recently as a result of his work documenting the struggle over land rights in BC, it got us wondering about the history and relationship between Jews and Indigenous peoples on this land. We reached out to David Kaufman to help us understand these issues. Professor Kaufman is the J. Richard Schiff Chair for the Study of Canadian Jewry at York University, the author of The Jews, Indian, Colonialism, Pluralism, and Belonging in America, and the editor of No Better Home, Jews, Canada, and the Sense of Belonging. David. Welcome to Bonjour Chai. Great to be here. Can we start with an overview of the history of Jewish-Indigenous relationships in the New World, right? I imagine it must have started not that much shortly after the Hearts arrived in New France.
3: Uh, yeah, so there, there is, um, you know, there's a long history. It turns out that the history between encounters between Jews and Indigenous people, uh, you know, pretty much goes back to the, the origins of not just soon after these initial fur traders arrived in New France, but before it was, of course, what, what brought them there in the first place. Um, so I try to kind of periodize the long history um, into some broad themes. There's this sort of business and settlement history, uh, which is a story that begins in the middle late uh, 18th century in New France, but also is the same kind of story that's around the Great Lakes region in Upper Canada. And the similar kind of story that happens when Jews begin to settle on the West Coast um, in the 1850s, 60s, uh, right around the time of the Gold Rush, although it's fur that brings Jews to the West and to the the St. Lawrence East as well. So, you know, the very beginning and the very reason that there are Jews uh, on this continent in a permanent settlement is because of the fur trade and its connection to what historians call the triangular, uh, the, the Atlantic triangular trade route, which moves fur and other valuable goods from the New World uh, to Europe, uh, uh, which then moves in the triangular fashion down to Africa, bringing slaves back to the New World, and we have this sort of triangular um, network of, of um, network of movement of goods uh, and bodies, uh, and the Jews are part of this uh, Atlantic world and soon Pacific world. And the, you know, indigenous encounter, the colonial engagement is really a very important part of it. So that that's the very start. Well, I,
0: I imagine that the, the uh, there there wasn't once you have that beginning. Is it a continuous long uh, history, or does it break down at some point? Um, and then where do we stand today? Ultimately, is really where I wanna. I'm, I'm much more curious about.
3: So well, it's a slapdash kind of history. There's there's a bit here and a bit there. But I think if we look, then we'll find there are lots and lots of moments throughout pretty much every period of Canadian history. So we have the settling of Jews uh, in the prairies, um, uh, which, you know, are, is made possible by the dispossession of indigenous people through violence, through epidemiological warfare, and through treaty making in order to make, you know, make the prairies agriculturally productive. And the federal government is interested in bringing Jews and lots of other European minorities uh, to the prairies to kind of make Canada possible to link this West Coast and the East Coast. And the displacement is really a fundamental part of the reason that Jews are are there uh, in, uh, in, the merits, in, the, in the prairies, uh, which is, you know, that's a late 19th century, early 20th century moment. But there are touchdown moments. You know, the fur trade continues well into the twentieth century, all the kind of clothiers and uh, people yeah. that are involved in the in the in the fur trade uh, in the north of Canada are you know are, have indigenous relations of all sorts, uh, and this continues even as the industry is uh, is industrialized. But there are lots of other kinds of encounters as well, including ones that I'd say begin even before Jews arrive here, because there's the long-standing idea that Indians are descendants from the lost tribes of Israel. And all the kind of imaginations about the New World uh, are kind oh, of wow. strangely wrapped up. You know, they're, they're, they Judaize the Indians, as it were. So, so there's a kind of Jewish Indian story even before the New World is settled. And many of the things that the colonial, uh, the colonial powers, the French, the Spanish, the English, and the Dutch, think about Indians, they've learned in part from their effort to manage Jewish difference in Europe because Jews are the only real other in Europe, the biggest other anyway. So they're taking some of what they learn and think about Jews and applying them to Indians. So, so There's even a kind of prehistory of Jewish life in North America that's, um, you know, that touches on indigenous history.
2: And I'm curious, what are some of the first relationships with either the Jewish community or with the Jews themselves and the indigenous populations of Canada? Well, the early
3: ones are trade relationships. Um, you know, we don't know much about them. The The historical record is pretty scant, and no one's done really hardcore research on this. But they're probably pretty amicable. I mean, we know that there's, uh, that there are, you know, respectable relations that have to happen. Uh, we know that Jews, at least in Ontario, when they're working, uh, what would be Ontario, Jews that are kind of working against the Hudson's Bay Company's monopoly on the fur trade, there are Jews and other traders, Arabic traders, who are kind of undermining the Hudson's Bay Company's monopoly uh, by ex- extending better credit to their indigenous, you know, business relations. There's some sex involved. There are, you know, the, there's there there are, you know children that are born, uh, including some marriages and some you know not marriages, just children that are born uh, from sexual unions between Jewish male traders and indigenous women. So there, there, there's all kinds of stuff. That's how, there's language learning going on. So there's all sorts of exchange that happened throughout the, the 19th and even early 20th century. And as I say, we don't know all that much about it yet, unfortunately. But I, I would say it's, it's, I mean, and it's, it's, it's somewhat marginal to the, the big story of what Jews are doing, immigrant Jews are doing in cities, but it's still a real part of it. And this sort of back and forth between the hinterlands and the city is also part of the early you know, Jewish Canadian experience.
1: Right, so just so that I understand, how much friction, you're saying that it was amicable, but the early part of your uh, historical overview made it sound like we were almost contributing to colonialism. So as Jews, how do we reconcile that as immigrants and refugees, um, the colonialism within our country, but then also, were we are we the bad guys? Are we contributing to that cause in your view?
3: Yeah, so it's a really, it's a great question. And it's pretty, it's pretty difficult for historians to do good guys, bad guys. But what I'd say is basically we're both. I mean, the big, if you look with like a wide angle lens, then you see that the, you know, the encounter between newcomers, be them, you know, business people, you know, some of them are rapacious, some of them have good relationships, but over time, you know, this is a extraction economy. This is a, this is a a, a business that works for the most part, because it takes resources away from the continent and sends all the wealth either to cities or back to Europe, and Jews are playing a part in this, even though they may be not nefarious actors. then there's the fact that the other players that are involved, colonial administrators, um, uh, missionaries uh, and you know the RCMP and other state you know actors are, are designing policies to contain and limit and challenge and, in some cases, eradicate indigenous populations. And since the Jews are here as settlers, you know, they are part of this overarching story of the of colonial dispossession. So in this sense, they're bad guys, uh, as you put it. But, you know, if you look closely at the archives and, you know, this, as, as I say, hasn't been done fully, you'll find lots of complex relationships between humans. And they're exchanging ideas and they're exchanging you know they they are they're 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 in negotiation for what they think is in their own best interests and you see at this very um, telephoto level you know they're maybe not bad guys exactly um, but they're also part of a, a large process uh, i when I did the research for the the book that you mentioned up top Avi about Jewish encounters with Native Americans in the United States, I did however find you know. Plenty of examples of actual bad guy Jews, of Jews who were participated in vigilante violence, you know, non-state sanctioned violence against indigenous populations in the states. You know, the infamous two-gun Cohen. There, there were lots of them. There, there were lots of people um, that played, you know, like like were really violent sure. um, and and murderous and scalping, and were very proud of what they did. They thought that this was part of the process of winning the West. And, uh, you know, I, we, I don't, I don't have cases at hand for the, the Canada story. Um, and there may be, or there may not be, I, I haven't dug that deeply into this part of the archival record in Canada.
0: We don't, we don't have to go violent. I mean, as recently as the sixties, we, we were very complicit in the sixties sweep, scoop. right? In 60 yeah. scoop, sorry. Um, where we, uh, where, you know, and we had Nakuset on the show where she spoke about this. She goes, "I remember being, you know, on a reservation. I was old enough, and then when I came to Canada, when I came to Montreal to Cote Saint Luke, uh, I was told to hide that, to say that I came from Israel. That's why I look different, and not to talk or think about that past." Um, and so we we were complicit in a lot of different places. Yeah,
3: and that's 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 at the level of families who who adopted Indigenous children, who fostered Indigenous children but it's also at an organizational level because Jewish Child and Family Services was were the involved ones in that were causes. sending sending them out. Yeah, yeah at an institutional level. And so so there's definitely a difficult part of that story. That's, you know, 80 years past this moment that I was talking about. But there there are lots of in-between moments as well. And, you know, I, I think from an indigenous perspective, um, which is what I'm interested in us just trying on and seeing what Jewish history looks like, you know, as seen from this encounter um, you know, there, there 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 may be some things that distinguish the Jewish experience from the non-Jewish settler experience, but overall, like it's just clear that we're we're a part of this process, and th- there have been you know lots of um, uh, lots of heartening encounters as well, lots of good relationships. There's a kind of long there's a long history of Jewish doctors and nurses, of lawyers, of uh, economic uplift advocates. Uh, of Jews who work for the province and the state, who are, you know really try to, uh, to, um, uh, you know, to do good by First Nations. Sometimes that fails. Sometimes those people are limited by, sort of their their liberal perspectives and are not you know really good enough good enough allies. But but they're trying, and and there's a very long history of Jewish advocacy on behalf of First Nations and Inuit and Métis people. Uh, from the sixties through to the present as well, so there's you know Alani asked about you know good guys and bad guys there's i say it's complicated, but there are there are there are, there are lots of um, uh, lots of things to be proud of in this really complicated history as well as lots of things to be you know to feel itchy about and for the Jewish community to think about what an entangled history means and what's to be done about it moving forward
2: i'm curious if you've noticed any kinds of changes within jewish institutions particularly maybe the jewish educational system i remember going to jewish school my whole life and indigenous communities or any type of information on indigenous culture was very scant to begin with other than they were here and then we move on. So I, I got very little knowledge of what the indigenous community. That's not
1: a Jewish education problem. That's a Quebec school system problem. Just yeah, saying, no, just saying.
2: Qu- quite possibly, but I, I'm just wondering: has there been any kind of movement afoot within uh, the Jewish education system to talk about indigenous communities uh, or indigenous rights?
3: Yeah, there have been massive movement on this. Um, ma- massive movement. I'd, I'd say the there was a watershed moment um, in at least how I describe Jewish indigenous history. In the early two thousands, after the David Aheniekwu affair, so you may remember, he was the um, he was a he was the head of the 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 AFN, and he made some really gruesome anti Semitic remarks, uh, and he was stripped of his order of Canada, and the organized Jewish community and the Jewish press was pretty anxious about why a First Nations leader would have been such an intense anti Semite, and in the wake of the Aheniekwu affair, there was a lot more effort that Canadian Jewish Congress. And uh, many provincial sort of provincial Jewish leaders uh, had with trying to forge better ties with indigenous communities and to think through their relationships. Uh, and then this process of kind of thinking through, you know, indigenous allyship or indigenous connections at all was intensified hugely after the drop of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And obviously in the last year, couple of years, um, you know, while the Canadian conversation has turned to colonialism and reconciliation and thinking through, you know, rethinking Canadian history uh, and taking indigenous people and what they've been saying about their experience in this place seriously, you know, has meant that there's been way, way, I mean, an order of huge magnitude uh, of greater interest in Jewish, among Jews in thinking about what this means too. So I'm talking about, you know, synagogue events, talks, Film screenings, programs at schools, um, you know, land acknowledgement debates and discussions about how and if to do this stuff. Um, they all I think many of the day schools, I'm not sure if all of them, but many of the Jewish day schools, uh, you know, have integrated or beginning to integrate uh, much better uh, Indigenous history curriculum, uh, as are the public school systems, you know, all across the country. So, um, so this is a this is a, a very very lively. Uh, discussion and you know to the point that we're doing a podcast on it now this would have been unimaginable five years ago um so yes there's there's an incredible amount of change in this period that we're in uh of let's call it of indigenous jewish history is is really quite quite rich and quite fascinating
0: one of the things that i um you know that i that i've been thinking about with the um what's going on with the Wet'suwet'en in bc is the uh I kept seeing parallels between what's going on within the establishment Jewish community or the Jewish community in general, and the um, and what's going on with uh, Native people in Canada. In that, there seems to be um, leadership um, having one certain set of goals, and the population, the the actual general population, the, as we would call the, the amcha, the people, right, um, having a different set of goals, and then that exists within the native population, where they have, you know, dealt with land rights in one way at the leadership level, and at the, po- the people's right level, there's no, um, uh, there's a very different set of, you know, beliefs and understandings and realities, um, and that this exists to a certain extent in the Jewish community, that, you um, in some way, uh, what we have is we have an establishment Jewish community leadership that has a certain view towards Israel, let's say towards anti-Semitism um, and towards some of the big picture um, issues of, uh, of the day with, within the Jewish community, but particularly with regards to Israel and Zionism, where that plurality of people, um, if not going to soon tip into a majority of people um, within the average, you know, Jewish population, has a very different view of that. Um, and you know, I was wondering if you can either a comment on that specifically, but I, I thought it was just to expand in general. What are the the values, but also just as much the perils of um, comparing the two populations? Because it's very easy to compare populations because we're both others in different ways. Um, there are advantages sometimes, but I'm sure that there are things that I'm not thinking about that can really um, not
3: be good about thinking about these types of comparisons. Well, there's a lot to tease out in, 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 your, in your question there, Avi. It's a lot there. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we're now one, one issue. So one one. One thing there is is about the sort of general characteristics that there are real differences of opinion among Jewish and indigenous communities and it's true like we're complex peoples we all have opinions we're all thinking we all have different uh, set of stakes uh, that they may not be called conservative or liberal, but we know that there's great differences of opinion about what's best for the community um, and the people who have the most power don't necessarily speak for everyone and this is a tussle that we're constantly engaged in. So, just as we know this to be true about uh, Canadian Jews, North American Jews, any diaspora Jewish community, with respect to Israel, but with respect to many, many other things, what's best for us? There's, you know, there's, there's, there's debate. Uh, there's likewise debate in every indigenous community. So let's just be real about that. So yes, we're parallel in that sense. Um, you you brought up a thread about um, about you know anti-Semitism and and sort of Israel-Palestine debate. Just in terms of the, the
0: perils of uh, comparing, but the, the values and perils of comparisons. And I actually think that that's a
3: very interesting thread if we can pick up on that. So there, I think one of the interesting, there, there is an interesting tendency um, for Jews, at least especially in the last decade to think through their parallels. How has the history of Jewish suffering and persecution paralleled the history of indigenous persecution and suffering? Uh, there's some anxiety, of course, about talking about genocide um you know do we use the term? do we not use the term what's the difference what's the same? but there's definitely an interest in drawing out parallels uh and even in your question, there was a little bit of an attempt to see parallels about leadership versus you know the ordinary rank and file citizens who may have a you know a difference of opinion than their than what the leaders present as the official official kind of um, Jewish perspective or indigenous perspective on issue X. Um, And this is all interesting and true. And I guess the social psychologist in me likes to note that people want to see parallels and similarities in order to relate. And this is a Jewish effort to say, oh yeah, these indigenous folks are just like Jewish folks. And we can understand what what their aims are and what their suffering is. And we can be sympathetic and we can get out of our own our own uh, shells a little bit and, you know, maybe do some good, which is of course a wonderful instinct. I also want to add that, that thinking about indigenous relations and issues and how indigenous life and history differs from Jewish life and history and experience is also really important and really instructive because we are different in so many ways. We're not, we're human of course, Uh, and we should always remember that but we're different in so many ways that so many of the assumptions that we have about uh, that we have as jews about what's good about canada and life in north america uh, is just seen at such a radically different perspective from many indigenous perspectives and and it's important to not forget to look for the differences and not just look to the parallels
1: that's great advice i just want to go back to your comment before about empathy and how we maybe use our own backgrounds to understand and relate to Indigenous communities. So I'm curious, what actually inspired you to focus on this in your career as, an, as a topic?
3: Well, I was starting when I, I, was, I was applying to PhD programs. I have a background in anthropology. And I was initially planning on doing a PhD in anthropology that, that, um, uh, that kind of put the Jewishness of all these pioneer anthropologists at the center of the story that basically blended the history of anthropology uh, with Jewish history. Because I was very curious about the fact that many of the founding figures of kind of modern anthropology, what we think of the anthropology, Franz Boas, Edward Sapir, uh, and many, 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 many of their students were Jews. And they spent, these guys spent, and some women actually spent their careers working with different indigenous communities in North America And, you know, kind of talking about cultural relativism, explaining that the differences between people were to be accounted for by culture and not by biology or by character or this sort of evolutionary ladder that, you know, cultures... There was no such thing as an evolutionary ladder that cultures move from simple to more complex and this is better or worse stuff. They were real cultural pluralists and they were trying to teach North Americans in general that race was a a bunk idea and that they were hopeful that if there was no such, if people understood that there was no such thing as race, then there would be no such thing as racism. And clearly, if there was no such thing as racism, then there couldn't be anti-Semitism as well. And as it turns out, these anthropologists in their private papers had a lot to say about Jewish issues and were, you know, many of them anyway, um, spent a good deal of their kind of off-professional time uh, helping advocate for Jewish life in North America, and spent their entire professional career and all their publication record talking about indigenous people um, to non-Indigenous audiences. So I thought this was a really interesting situation of Jews as kind of cultural middlemen trying to, you know, shift the shift the dial, what's the, you know, trying to change the, the pulse of the conversation uh, in North America about cultural difference which would make space for indigenous people and for Jews. Anyway, I was totally fascinated by this by this subject. It turns out to be one of the chapters uh, in the book that, that I wrote. Um, no anthropology department wanted to have me. Uh, anthropology said, oh no, you really have to do field work and do this not a kind of historical thing. And anthropology has kind of had a long, difficult uh, path of tension with its Jewish question. What, what do we do with the fact that so many anthropologists were Jews. Anyway, I just signed up instead at a history department uh, and did a, did a, uh, did a, uh, and then you know actually this David Ahennikew affair was kind of unfolding as I was starting this work, and I thought, oh wow, well, there's this David Ahennikew situation unfolding in Canada. I was in the states doing my PhD, thinking about these American anthropologists, and then I thought maybe maybe I'll just pause here and try to cast a wider net and say when did Jews And indigenous people meet. What did those meetings look like? You know, when, how? And I just started scouring the archives, you know, looking for Indians in in Jewish archives and looking for Jews in collections that have to do with, you know, indigenous life and just amassed a massive number of interesting scraps from the historical record and tried to make sense of what this broad history looks like
0: to be fair Jews are cultural middlemen in in so many areas right you think about literature you think about we, we talked about the West Side story on the show last week and how Jews were the cultural middlemen for for Puerto Ricans in New York that that is one of the things that we often do um, as academics as scholars is we're always looking
3: towards others and we end up bringing those to to
0: the population
1: for, be- for better or for worse
3: yeah we also we know a lot it's about a- the story you know historians have long been interested in the relationship between Blacks and Jews, uh, and there's a really robust, interesting bookshelf, you know, full of debate about how this history works, what it means, what we should be thinking about it, and of course this has changed a lot, um, you know, since Black Lives Matter, this debate has really renewed itself in a super fascinating way, but when I started this work, you know, over 10 years ago now, there was just absolutely nothing on Jews and other others, and I thought, oh, I'm, I'm, this I'm really interested in this particular encounter and what we learn about Jews and Jewish history from it. Since I come at, I come at it as a historian of the Jews, you know, um, uh, there will hopefully be, uh, you know, indigenous scholars, scholars of indigeneity who are also interested in what it means when, you know, from, from, from you know, from the other side of the dialogue. Um, but there was very little and still is quite little scholarship, um, on uh you know on, on jews and indigenous interactions that's changed there's a little bit more now and there's certainly more community interest so
0: you know i'm in montreal alana's in toronto uh spent time in vancouver david's in calgary i feel like there's probably a lot of stuff happening you know in terms of boots on the ground these types of activities going on uh in terms of jewish indigenous relations and uh, you know rapprochement and just dis- and dialogue um where can one find any of this information? Is this stuff happening? How is this happening? Like in terms of actual day to day in Canada right now, and where should one look for it?
3: Well, as far as I know, there's no effort to aggregate all of these things. There's no master list or calendar of events, although it's a pretty neat idea. Um, what there is is a programming happening coast to coast coast. Um, some more and more in some places and less in other places. I think you probably find the most happening in B.C. Um, Winnipeg is probably, you know, a place where Winnipeg's a place where the indigenous and Jewish history is rich and long and pretty intense. Uh, but there are there are really so many things. So I suppose I would say, you know, go to your favorite Jewish organizations, websites, look at their past events, look at their future events, and you will probably find something that's that's happened recently or is planning, you know, is, is, is in the works. Uh, I wrote an article a couple of years back called suffering and sovereignty recent jewish interest recent canadian jewish interest in indigenous people and issues and in the essay i tried to pull together things that were happening and give a bit of historical perspective and an analytic lens on why it was happening now and how it's meaningful so that has the footnotes for that article have a you know like a pretty decent um, you know panoply of different sorts of activities but that's grown you know, exponentially, even in the past few years since I originally wrote that. So I would say, go poke around. You know, um, there are all kinds of organizational um, organizational efforts uh, on behalf, like from kind of mid-small level humanitarian Jewish organizations that have turned their attention to, uh, you know, helping out indigenous communities. Uh, there are the kind of high-level uh, federation and seja level. Conversations with indigenous leaders in the kind of lobbying sphere, there are business opportunities, uh, there are lots and lots of Jewish you know advocates who are who are more or less explicitly Jewish about their work or more or less explicit about their Jewish motivations in doing the work. There are religious organizations that are thinking about what a serious or interesting encounter with indigenous history and communities and religious leaders and elders. Uh, what that might teach Jewish congregants or students so at schools and synagogues. There are creative, interesting, artistic projects that are happening, um, uh, dialogical projects as well as projects um, from artists who identify as both Jewish and indigenous. You know, one parent who are indigenous, one parent is Jewish. Uh, you know, cuisine, filmmaking. There's uh, there. There's a lot of. Residential school and Holocaust survival talks that are planning, you know, that are that are that have that have been executed and planning or in the works as well, um, both writing and oral, you know, and and you know some of this is you know some of this should be understood as Canadian Jews, you know, engaging in the broad reconciliation project as Canadians, and some of it has a particularly Jewish. Jewish lens can be kind of mobilized for Jewish purposes, uh, including some of it. it um, Some of it is also allyship building uh, around um, issues about political sovereignty, uh, language revitalization, environmental practice all around Israel Um, and what it means to sort of say that Jews are an indigenous people Uh, In the biblical land of Israel and to make and try to produce a sense of allyship, both for the sake of the Jews and indigenous people here who are listening and for other people who are witness to this, you know, great Jewish debate and great debate about Jews, about the extent to which Jews are indigenous to the land of Israel or are colonists in that place uh, and all of the fraught anxieties that come with this kind of sovereignty question Uh, and what it means to you know produce allyships and connections and linkages and claims with indigenous people here
1: yeah i wanted to shout out uh, a quick exhibit that i really enjoyed called they didn't know we were seeds we can put the link in the show notes it's a virtual exhibit i don't know if you saw it uh david or any of the rest of you um it's Paintings of Holocaust survivors and residential school survivors and I found it really moving Uh, It's the virtual gallery at the J uh, through the Cultura Collective here in Toronto
2: I guess in terms of our last word itself David I, I just wanted to know maybe how as as Jews as individual Jews or as community Jews sort of we can be a bit more Effective allies in working with the indigenous community. What what can we do that's either on the ground or taking some proactive steps? When I hear people, this everyone asks these questions when I, when I do like synagogue
3: talks or sometimes I have dialogues with Indigenous leaders. And this question, of course, invariably gets asked. And interestingly, the Indigenous response is usually, what can you do? What can you do, David? What can you do, Avi? What can you do, Alana? Like, what are you good at? What What assets do you have? And how can you best use them in a way? And, you know, if this means like giving away some of your philanthropic dollars to you know, more this year to Indigenous causes than which ones? You know, there's lots out there. Uh, there's lots of things that I think may, might speak to you. Um, they also say, and I would also agree, you should learn, you know, learn more, learn more Indigenous history, uh, learn more Indigenous history, particularly about the place where you live. Um, and, you know, just take it seriously. Like, let, let, let's have that be the start. And always remember that the Indigenous people from past and present who are around are real people they're just they're just real people like us and uh um you know and uh, and and think about it in a kind of with a kind of idiom of care uh and an idiom of compassion as you would want uh all non-Jews to think about and know something about Jews um you know with a inside that same um idiom of compassion. Excellent. Thank you so
0: much, Uh, David Kaufman. David Kaufman is a professor at York University, the author of a couple of books. We'll put the links to the books um, in the show notes. You can find links to both of those in the show notes, and uh, you can email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca to let us know what you thought, or join us in the Slack channel, uh, the Frozen Chosen Slack channel, to uh, keep the conversation going. Um, David, thanks again so much, Um, and I do hope that this is not the last time you're on uh,
3: Bonjour Chai. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun talking to you guys. So uh, we're coming
0: to the end of our uh, Watch Academy, David. Uh, did I graduate? I don't know. You're going to have to answer a quiz in the next in the next uh, ad uh, for Atelier Lou. One of the best brands that I find that Atelier Lu has, for me, it's one of the top, it's a new brand um, in terms of watchmaking. Um, and it's coming from a place where you don't necessarily think about ultra fine watchmaking, although they have a long tradition of fine craftsmanship. Uh, and that's England. And the watch company is called Bremont. Um, Bremont has uh, these amazing watches that have great collaborations, both with car makers and uh, air, airplanes. Um, but they just have this beautiful story about how um, they just decided to uh, create great watches in a place where great watches weren't necessarily created before. Um, and each watch I find has so much backstory to it, so much history that is already built in. And I just want to tell you like one of these stories, right? And this is like clearly if your fiance or your Family is deciding to say, you know what, David deserves, you know, really something great. Um, a Bremont watch is something at that level um, where you can, you know, really treat somebody special to something special. Um, one of the collaborations they have is this uh, Martin Baker. Um, it's the MB1, the MB2, and the MB3. Now, there is no difference between the MB1 and the MB2. The MB1 is a watch that you cannot buy. And I'll tell you why in a second. Um, Martin Baker is a company that actually uh, makes seventy percent of the world's ejection seats for fighter planes. And when they collaborated with this company, they decided that, hey, if we're gonna make a watch with a company that's like that makes ejection seats, our watch should be able to withstand being ejected from a fighter plane and still f- function. So they engineered this watch to be shock resistant, to be, you know, really totally sturdy, really shatter, resistant or whatever it's a little thicker it's a little bigger it's a little chunkier but it has that ability it can actually withstand major shock and the mb2 and the mb3 um, can actually um, you know go up and come down with multiple g's of force and and survive and that actually is baked into the watch itself now you can only buy an mb1 which is again, like I said, identical to the MB2. And why can't you buy the MB1, David? Why can't I? Because you haven't been ejected from a seat. From an. You don't know plane. that.
2: You do not know what my life was like pre-Bonjour Chai. Well, have you? <laughs> uh, not in this life. Okay. Well, then you can't buy one
0: because that one is exclusively for people who have been ejected. And it turns out there's actually a club. There's like this global club and you get a number after you've been ejected from like, you know, uh, a fighter plane and you become part of the group that has done this and lived and you get a number. And when you do this, you get you're eligible to buy an MB1 watch from Bremont and they engrave your number on it and it becomes your watch. And, uh, you know, that's it. So I think it's a fascinating and so many other Martin Baker watches have these kinds of stories built into them. And I really think that they're remarkable things.
2: Can we, can we get one of these people on the podcast who have been injected from from one of these
0: uh, planes? So the interesting thing is, is that there's a Jewish connection to this, is that one of the most recent ones that I, I heard about was a few years ago, there was a Jewish pilot that actually um, ejected um, from the Israeli Air Force. Um, they were in you know, some maneuvers with um, some battle over Lebanon and they ejected. And I went to like Eric and I was like, hey, we got to get this guy a watch. Um, I think that they don't release names of active, you know, uh, high tech, like, You know quality test pilot or pilots in general because these people are active maybe this guy's not active anymore we can ask him about what it was like to be ejected would be a great interview we shouldn't ask
2: do you think they get together for like cocktail parties once a year around the world in different cities and locations and be like where were you ejected i was rejected over the sands in the deserts here i was you know over the alps there maybe i don't know
0: we should ask if i wanted to get an mb2 though alana where would i get it
1: well, you're in luck because our sponsor, Atelier Lou Bijouterie in Montreal, carries these watches. And if you are listening to the show, you can use the code BON18 at checkout for 10% off your order at atelierlou.com.
0: And I can tell you it's not so easy to get 10% off a Bremont watch. They usually do not discount them. So uh, go run and pick up a Bremont watch um, while you can, if you can. Let's move on to a bit of a wrap-up here. You know, we're coming towards the end of the year, and uh, I know that you guys are both uh, culture vultures. Um, Are you? I I think so. By product of
1: being in the culture world?
0: By professional culture providers, and uh, by extension, consumers.
2: I I try to avoid all culture at all times and and just lock myself away down in the basement, uh, jigsaw puzzling every night.
0: So uh, what, what kind of... I wanted to sort of th- take a step back and uh, reflect on the year in Jewish culture. Um, and I was wondering what you guys uh, came across your radar this year. What, if you had to wrap up what Jewish culture meant for you in 2021, um, what do we take from that?
2: Look, I think it was a hard year, especially, you know, re- year two of the COVID pandemic where, you know, I think this was supposed to be the best summer ever, according to Jason Kenny here in Calgary. Um, they even sold hats and shirts saying best summer ever. And it turned into the winter of our discontent. Um, I, I think there's just a lot of back and forth where we're open, full access, everyone can do anything at all times. We're the most free province in the entire country to uh, shut it all down. We've spiked our cases. Who knows why? Uh, you know, when you just say go about doing your thing every which way without masks, yeah, you're going to have a spike in cases. So that was obviously the culture of what was going on for me, you know, are we open? Are we not open? Are we fully free? Are we not? Uh, that's what was generally going on in my Alberta, Calgary life, I would say. Alana, what what were you up to over the past little 12 months That felt like 24 years?
1: Oh, I got into some older Jewish shows that I hadn't yet. Like I finally got into Broad City. Um, Seinfeld? <laughs> I mean... That's more recent I've been, than it was.
2: I've been, re-watching, I've been re-watching Seinfeld the entire time, too. Right,
1: now that it's back on Netflix. But yeah, Broad City had been a, a show on my radar for a long time that I hadn't seen. I also, um, if you know the comedian Rachel Bloom, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, she released a book this year, which I uh, got from the library and quite enjoyed. Um, but I feel like there wasn't so many films or shows that really stood out to me, like I saw Shiva Baby, which uh, was like an hour of anxiety.
2: <laughs> um, it really was. It was so anxious. <laughs> it was so. I anxious. only saw the
0: the short. The like, is it an excerpt or something that the, the moment of the Shiva itself, and then the, the reveal when she meets her client, like the trailer. Um, that it was it a trailer. It's like a ten minute bit. Oh no, I, there's like a two. It was minute released, tra- I think, as a short film. Oh, but then there was, well, I
1: know she did it for her thesis at um, NYU. Maybe that was the original version. It's not
0: all twenty It's like yeah, whole
1: yeah, it's a hour, full. No? It's a feature. The, the movie. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so you didn't I, see the whole thing. I did thing. not see the feature. I just excerpt. Definitely yeah. check it out. Um, and then uh, I think it was oh. the most
2: Jewish experience of twenty twenty one was Shiva Baby.
1: Honestly, it might have been. Um, and then the two others that stand out to me that one of them we we covered on the show is Loon. Um, that we had Aviva um, Armor Ostroff on the show. Um, in May, and it was her feature film that I thought was really beautiful. Um, and then also the film Charlotte at TIFF, which I wrote an article about, was one of the most stunning, stunning uh, animated films around the, around the Holocaust that I've probably ever seen. It made me cry a lot.
2: Have you been? Have you heard of The Shrink Next Door at all by any chance?
0: Because no. I. I... Come on, hello. I spoke about yes. it like 2 weeks ago on the I show. I know you did. This is why I was oh. bringing it I up guess Rod, I Will not Farrell we talked about Jewface. I face. guess I wasn't paying attention. We were talking about Jewface and oh. whether, you know,
2: uh. Paul Rudd is a Jew but whether Will Farrell can play a Jew. Um I've been I've been eating it up. I mean, he clearly can play a Jew. He was doing so good. So, it, that was another thing just at the tail end of this year is The Shrink Next Door and it was based on a podcast that I was listening to several months earlier itself. Fascinating story um about manipulation money, the schmata business in New York itself, um, I would I would really recommend checking The Shrink Next Door out on Apple Plus TV. It's interesting that you say that there was, you know, first of all, when it comes to movies and TV,
0: I think that this was the most Jewish year culturally in terms of film and TV, simply in that nobody went to the theater, nobody went to movies, which is very Jewish. It's like, oh, I'll just wait till it comes out on video, right? And like, that's what we're doing. We're like, we're not going to the theater unless even I went to see Dune know? in
1: theaters. I, the other day,
0: exactly. I'm saying, except for that, there's a lot of people yeah. that are like, I don't want to see it in a theater. Yeah, I'm gonna yeah. wait. But like for the majority of the year, it was like, I know the theaters are open, but I'm gonna wait unless there's something real, uh, real important reason. And yeah, West Side Story is only in the theaters. But yeah, so that 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 felt very Jewish in that you know we didn't need to have this like moment. Right. In it. It's it's so Jewishy culture to say I'll wait till I get it in the library. You know, and uh, you know that's that. So but. Um, the thing that I found remarkable in reflecting about my cultural um, absorption over the past 12 months is that I read a lot, and I read a lot of Jewish stuff. And as you said, not necessarily new, um, because there was a lot of new um, Jewish um, books and ideas and and, and things. I, uh, I was really struck, for example, this year by Hidden Heretics, which is a nonfiction book. Um, it was more academic um, about the double lives of Hasidim online, um, the Jews who are, the Hasidic Jews who are, um, um, leading this double life where externally they are uh, Hasidic to their community because they have communal reasons for being part of it. But online, they basically um, talk about you know, their doubts and their struggles and things like that. Ayala Fader, she's a professor at Fordham, I believe, in this really wonderful book. And a lot of other books that came out in terms of the nonfiction or you know great Jewish ideas. Um, but one of the things that I'm always absorbing, and I'm always listening to music, and I couldn't think of a great Jewish... Um, musical moment that happened this year that was really original and, and, and I think part of it is even going a few years back um, in that there's, there we seem to be stagnating in terms of like good, original, interesting uh, innovative Jewish music um, you know I, I I had to go back to the early part of the year when Ishai Rebo who is one of my uh, great musical heroes, um, does, who's an Israeli singer, um, he's uh, observant but he doesn't always think about like super observant uh, material, he sings in Hebrew and he released a triple live album and I was like oh that was a highlight the year um, and I was like oh but it was still a live album it was not quite new material uh, and that the innovative sector and I kept thinking you know I remember at the beginning of last March when we were just locking down I remember commenting to a friend and I said just wait six months from now everybody's going to have their shitty bedroom pop album from the quarantine right and and the the result is that there's a lot of great music happening right now there's so much good music that has come out over the past year that I can really point out to Um, but in terms of specifically Jewish content I, I really had a hard time going back and thinking about great Jewish music, although um, there, there's uncountable number of Jewish books. So that's just, again, another meta um, way of thinking about uh, where we are right now.
2: We should ask our listeners in terms of any Jewish music out there that they can think of and recommend to the Bonjour Chai family itself.
0: I would love to hear more um, innovative Jewish music.
2: I'm voracious in
0: terms of my musical appetite and all my cultural appetites. Uh, But you should let us know. I'm curious what you guys um, thought about your past year culturally, what books did you read that uh, moved you, both positively or negatively? Uh, Movies, books, music. Um, The one thing that I, you know, so uh, let me finish that thought. Send it to us at bonjour at the cjn.ca or put it in our Slack channel. Um, And the way that you join the Slack channel is you send us an email and uh, we will get you in to the frozen chosen. But one of the things that I did notice this year is that I uh, absorbed a lot of visual art that was Jewish. Uh, whether online or Me not too, well actually. in person. But there was a lot of great visual art that was coming across my radar, whether it was Maimonides' nuts, which we had called out um, positively in Anachas' earlier segment. Uh, Noah Baraness was uh, another artist, a calligrapher that I just uh, came across recently. Uh, a lot of great Jewish art that I... Um, was purchasing was doing because I think as I'm home and I wanted to fill up the walls even though I have twice as much wall space uh, twice as much art as the wall space that I have but we're we're rotating stuff we're doing stuff I got this really cool Hebrew Leonard Cohen poster this year which was pretty awesome um, it was from uh, the documentary the I'm your man documentary which is like a part concert part documentary and uh, it's this great portrait and the whole lettering is in Hebrew and I can't wait to put that one up but yeah um, send us more recommendations, we'd love to hear what you thought. Um, we'd love to hear your year in culture. Bonjour at the CJN.ca. Our word of wisdom this week comes from Zachary Borden, 11th grade student at the King David High School in Vancouver, BC.
4: This week, we read Parsha Vayahi, where we read about Jacob's final days in Egypt, along with Joseph. Near his death, Jacob does something very interesting. As he is giving blessings to his grandchildren, he gives Ephraim his blessing even though he was younger than his brother Menashe. Throughout the book of Genesis, there are many points of tension when it comes to the firstborn blessing. The tension always stems when the younger brother keeps getting the blessing over the older brother. We see this with Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, and Joseph and his older brothers. All of this tension leads to problems which create damage within the family. Knowing this, when Jacob is giving blessings to his grandchildren, he purposely gives the younger one, Ephraim, the blessing. This time the blessing does not create tension, and the brothers are okay with it. Ephraim was more fitting than Menashe to get the blessing, and they knew this. Ephraim was more fitting than Menashe to get the blessing, and they knew this. Every Friday night we bless our children, like Ephraim and Manasseh, So tonight, as you bless your children, it is really a blessing for peace in our families and in our homes. Shabbat Shalom.
0: And now it's time for our Nachas of the Week, where we talk about the things that made us um, feel good, feel Jewish um, over the past week. Alana, what's your Nachas?
1: My Nachas goes out to uh, Montreal MP from the Liberal Party, Anthony Housefather, who this week on Matt Galloway's show on CBC The Current... Uh, talks about Bill 21 and how it infringes upon fundamental rights and why we need a national debate um, to the notwithstanding clause. That is a quote from Anthony Housefather's Facebook page. Um, And uh, what it says on CBC is, in Quebec, some people say more has to be done to push back against the province's Bill 21. Parents Kirsten Taylor Bosman and Paul McInnes each had to tell their children why their grade 3 teacher was removed for wearing a hijab in a classroom. Both parents feel the teacher was taken out of the classroom unfairly. So I am very proud to have someone like Anthony Housefather um, in the community and uh, speaking up for minority groups and for rights. And I think he's doing a lot of good.
2: Can I just add on by that? I remember when the pandemic started itself. And I think a lot of people were very nervous about um, financial difficulties that they were going to experience. And a union I'm involved with said, email your MPs. I emailed my MP here in Calgary, never ever got a response back from him at all. I emailed Anthony Housefather, within 24 hours, he responded to a personalized uh, email, messaged me. So I I just think, yeah, thanks thanks for at least getting back to me, even though you're not my official MP anymore.
1: I love that a lot. Uh, David, what's your nachas?
2: So my nachas for the week is, uh, on the past weekend, Ahvat Amim, the program I spent six months in Israel with, sort of had a seven-year anniversary celebration. They were uh, discussing what's been going on on the ground in Jerusalem and in Israel and in the Palestinian territories itself. I started, I was the first cohort way back in 2014. At that time, there were just six of us. And now seven years later, there are over 100 past participants. Uh, It was really great to meet a bunch of people who I'd never met before. Some people who I knew from the... The, the time I was there. And it's just wonderful to see how this organization has grown and is expanding and has a lot of plans for the next seven years in the future.
1: David, can you remind us what the organization is?
2: So Achvat Amim, and what that means is it's called Solidarity of Nations. It's um, it's a bit of a grassroots organization that used to be part of Massa Israel that works with Israeli and Palestinians on the ground. When I was there, I worked with the school hand in hand, teaching English and drama to uh, both Israeli and Palestinian kids who learn together and go to school together. That's just one part of the organization. I visited one of those schools. It's remarkable. It is so remarkable. Um, unfortunately, the school I was working at got firebombed uh, about two years after I was there itself by a right-wing extremist, um, an Israeli right-wing extremist, but they they rallied and came back together. So they just do a lot of different things on the ground to talk about some of the uncomfortable truths um, that we in the Jewish community sometimes uh, don't want to address. Excellent.
0: Um, my nachas this week is uh, I'd like to talk about uh, Rabbi Moshe Baron. Rabbi Moshe Baron first came into my life as a uh, NCSYer um, when I was a young young advisor, so we really didn't have that much of an age difference. Um, he became more observant because of NCSY. He ultimately ended up um, becoming my study partner in rabbinical school when we were studying for the rabbinate here in Montreal at Yeshiva Noam Hatorah, which was a cohort of one. Uh, and not a cohort of one, it was one cohort um, of uh, students over several years where we learned with Rabbi Joshua Schmidman. Uh, and he inevitably ended up the person that I studied the most with, my chavruta. Um, and we didn't always stay in touch um, after I left Montreal, um, but I always knew he was there. I had a lot of fond memories of him, one of the sweetest, nicest men that I ever knew. Uh, and Rabbi Moshe Baron passed away this week uh, in Israel um, from COVID. And uh, it was really a moment to reflect, again, not on the sadness of his passing, but on the joy that he brought into everybody else's life, and especially into mine. Um, He was a great man, and uh, I will always remember him as a great study partner and uh, a great Jew. So that is my nachas, is remembering those moments. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week of Friday, December 17th, Shabbat Vayichi. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production is by Andre Goulet and our music is by So Called. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our new page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold, I'm Ilana
1: Zakon,
2: and I'm David Sklar.